Case file number 3.11. Lo-fi Wi-Fi. Observed by Agent Grinshaw. Subject 1, alias Hackalope. Subject has a history of working in computer security for over 20 years. He has been observed to several Fortune 500 companies and federal agencies during that period. He has been amassing historical information related to espionage and covert action as well as corporate malfeasance. Subject 2, alias Emir. Subject has a history of working in computer security for the last 10 years. He has been observed at NASA facilities regularly. We've also tracked him to the gym where he seems to be bodybuilding. We are amassing evidence to charge him with felony for skipping leg day and curls on the squat rack. Subjects are suspected of having information related to hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subject in the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. Hey, Ymir, you have a master's in cybersecurity, right? I do, yeah. Did you ever have to do a thesis? Kind of. It was more of a project than a thesis. Okay. Well, today's episode is about, about Wi-Fi security, and uh, I'm going to give a shout out to a guy named Mark Fink, because his master's thesis in cybersecurity submitted to Radabout University in the Netherlands in 2020 uh, was titled A Comprehensive Taxonomy of Wi-Fi Attacks. And I found that very <laughs> useful in writing this episode. Interesting. I wish I found it sooner. I got like halfway or two-thirds of the way through the script of this before I found it. But it was <laughs> it at the very least let me check to make sure I had some stuff straight. Yeah, better late than never. Yeah. Well, um, I'm gonna say that we're gonna we're, I'm gonna try and link link the thesis in the show notes. I'm not nearly as thorough as him. And in fact, I skip over a couple of attacks that I thought were either kind of redundant or not very interesting. But uh, judge for yourself. It's 70 some pages, so including dependencies. Nice. <laughs> but he does go through the actual like handshakes and everything like that. And and uh, if you're getting into Wi-Fi security, it wouldn't be the worst idea to, um, to use that as a place to, right. to start. Anyway, so IEEE, the, the uh, International Electrical Engineering, uh, I don't have the decompression of the, of the entire thing, but it's basically the International Electrical Engineers uh, Professional Group. Uh, they have a bunch of standards, and the standard that defines basically all of Ethernet is standard 802.802. And the standard that deals with Wi-Fi is a substandard off of that called 802.11. So where all of Wi-Fi starts is on the 802.11 stuff. A guy named Vic Hayes helped design the standards along with uh, a, an engineer named Bruce Tuch. Bruce Tuch? Yeah, T-U-C-H. Okay. Tuch. Uh, not Stanley Tucci, who's a <laughs> different guy and an actor in Hollywood, but uh, Tucci. The two of them approached IEEE with the standard, and Vic Hayes then chaired the IEEE uh, 802.11 group for about 10 years thereafter. Uh -huh. So the standard itself was released in 1997, and 802.11b is basically Wi-Fi as, or, or the start of Wi-Fi as we know it. There is an A, it was released about the same time, but it was a lot more expensive to implement. So B is what we ended up with. Okay. In 1999, the Wi-Fi Alliance was formed and they own all of the Wi-Fi trademarks. And they're basically the standards body specifically about Wi-Fi implementations. And they come up here and there in as we go through this. And they call 802.11b generation one consumer Wi-Fi. It uses the 2.4 gigahertz spectrum mm -hmm. and the max throughput is about 11 megabits. Okay, yeah. 
It's important that this is under 802 because they use ethernet framing. Basically the, the same way we construct layer two packets mm. to layer three in wired networks works basically the same for wireless. Right. They used a lot of the same stuff. Now it's not exactly the same because you have the AP negotiation stuff was a little bit more complicated. And authentication to the network, like hard authentication, not, hey, I'm on the network. Right, yeah. Came about because of Wi-Fi. That's eight, I believe it's 802, the standard for that is 802.1x. I'm not going to get into that very much, but when you talk about network access controlled NAC, yeah. that's why all of that works. And the fact that it works on both wired and wireless networks comes down to the fact that it's all Ethernet. Makes sense. So one big difference actually between wireless and wired is... When you're on a network segment, what we used to call a collision domain back when people used hubs, all the ethernet stuff was all about collision detection. If you transmit the same time I transmit, we're on the same network and we're on the same collision domain, we collide and we detect that the collision happens. You and I wait some random amount of time to retransmit so that we don't collide again. Mm -hmm. Problem is, that doesn't work very well for wireless because if you're transmitting at the same time, the failure conditions are very different. You're transmitting at the same time, you're basically jamming each other. Right. So instead of taking a collision detection strategy, you're taking a collision avoidance strategy. And one of the big differences in Wi-Fi is figuring out how to do collision avoidance huh. uh, within the system. And 802.11b, everybody was transmitting basically on the same band. So that was really, really important. Now, when I was saying that, that 802.11a was also released at the same time, well, it was using a strategy for using a little bit more of the spectrum, what they call side channel mechanisms, so that each participant on a single AP had a different set of frequencies that they were using. So you didn't have collision direct collision between hosts. Hmm, okay. This is called orthogonal frequency division multiplexing. And that is the only time you need to hear that. <laughs> I actually remember learning that for some reason or learning about that for some reason during some college course. Yeah, well, that strategy is still in, is in place for all the subsequent major Wi-Fi things. Uh, 802.11G, uh, 802.11N, and basically mm -hmm. we're running on N at this point, basically. All use stuff derived from the orthogonal fre frequency division multiplexing that 802.11a introduced. But getting radios that would do all of that were much more expensive to build than 802.11b. Uh -huh. And so in 1999, the Apple iBook was released with an 802.11b wireless network thing. Uh, I think that they called it AirTalk. Uh, uh, it's in the Wikipedia article, but I didn't write it in my script. <laughs> <laughs> and then in 2000, uh, IBM released the ThinkPad 1300 series, likewise with 802.11b built in. Oh, okay. So G was released in 2003, built in some backward compatibility with 802.11b, which actually slowed it down in relation to A. 802.11a used uh, the 5 gigahertz spectrum. And 802.11g incorporated the 2.4 gigahertz spectrum mm -hmm. using the the orthogonal frequency division stuff. Yeah, because I, I remember the the five gigahertz spectrum. Like that was a a cool new thing because most home appliances run on 2.4. So uh, yeah, the next thing in in 2009 actually used both sets of spectrum, 
but you can't hop between chunks of spectrum on the same access point. You have two mm. different SSIDs. Um, and that SSID is the important name that the access point announces itself as. In fact, right. you, I don't know if, uh, if this is something you've messed with, but you can absolutely announce multiple access multiple SSIDs from the same access point. A lot of access points support that. Oh, like uh, multiple of the same like frequency? So they figure out, because there's actually, and I don't want to get into the Wi-Fi engineering of things, mm-hmm. but different channels in use, and they use different channels for this for different SSIDs, but using the same access point. Like my home network, I actually have a network built for kind of all of the laptops and stuff. And I have a different network, a different SSID that is used for all of the phones and IoT type devices. And I also use that for guests. Okay, yeah, I think I remember kind of sending something up like that with uh, a Ubiquiti um, access point. Ubiquiti absolutely supports that stuff. Yeah. And that means like if you were to do that on your home network, you can very much say, I don't want to have to worry about my wireless password that I use internally, I can just, you know, give this one out to guests and not worry about it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I treat the traffic a little bit differently between the more robust platforms and handheld devices, Mm -hmm. just because I was playing around with that. But if you're in an enterprise environment, you're definitely going to see, you know, the guest network and maybe the infrastructure network. And those two things are announced by the same access points. Yeah. So you can have access points that have multiple SSIDs, but you can have two different frequencies that you'll see like, you know, my access point, my access point dot 5G. And they're two different SSIDs because they're two different spectrums. And those, you can't hop from one spectrum to the other without reassociating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think like my main devices are on my five gigahertz channel. And then a few Mm -hmm. other ones are on 2.4. There's actually some things like... uh, wise cameras mm-hmm. they're pretty cheap on amazon but they only work on 2.4 okay uh, like in a few other security cameras only work on 2.4 well it's not unreasonable um the more frequencies you deal with the more radios you're running and that's expense in building those devices and um more space more expense so yeah yeah there's a bunch of of other 802.11 standards that we're not talk- going to talk about that are iot assignment stuff supposed to be for auto assignment of of um internet of things devices and there's uh after 2013 there were some a few new standards released one of which was Y gig which used the 6000 or sorry 60 gigahertz spectrum um which has throughputs up to about 7 gigabit but the range is like 10 meters <laughs> oh, really <laughs> yeah um it can be very useful but the use cases are a little bit different. The framing works about the same way, and I couldn't find any differences in the way that you might attack the association and whatnot mm. between Y gig and regular Wi-Fi. So I didn't highlight it specifically. Right. That might also be because there hasn't been a ton of research done uh, of attack research done on Y gig at this point. We're currently living in the 802.11n world, which is labeled by the Wi-Fi Alliance Wi-Fi four. And it supports um, multiple input, multiple output, in addition to all the other stuff we were talking about, Mm -hmm. which allows for the use of multiple radios, multiple antennas on the same access point. So you can multiplex more traffic streams. Right. 
uh, gives you a much better simultaneous service between different clients or possibly even the same client doing different things. And it, it uses the same standard to use both the 2.4 gigahertz and 5 gigahertz spectrum. Okay. There's also uh, Wi-Fi 6, which uses the 6 gigahertz spectrum. But again, this is kind of like the, the other wide gig stuff where it's not that different. It doesn't, at this point, call for specific uh, uh, attention from a secure, cybersecurity perspective. Mm-hmm. But at this point, they use the 2.4, 5 gigahertz, 6 gigahertz, and 60 gigahertz spectrums. These span uh, what are known as the ultra-high frequency UHF, which goes from 30 megahertz, sorry, 300 megahertz to 3 gigahertz to the super high frequency spectrum. And then just the um, 60 gigahertz stuff is in the extremely high frequency spectrum. And this radio spectrum has been designated for industrial scientific and uh, medical reservation by the International Telecommunications Union. And they reserved this stuff back in 1947. Yeah, uh, so the ITU has been in operation since 1865 to manage the radio spectrum. And also, at this point, they manage um, satellite orbits. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's essentially a standards body that allows for international agreement of these things. This is actually really important because it means that the spectrum reserved in the U.S. and the spectrum reserved any other place in the the world is the same spectrum. So you're using the same radios for Wi-Fi in every place. That makes sense. Yeah. Turns out these guys were really thinking when they came up with this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There was a conference of the ITU in Atlantic City, New Jersey, where uh, some folks from the, uh, well, it was folks from all over the world, but some folks in the FCC were like, um, we're noticing people using this spectrum. And we're, so we're going to need to reserve some of this. Mm -hmm. And um, they actually called out, the ITU called out that the FCC came with a lot of previous research for what they were going to propose. Mm, okay. So, you know, the FCC does something. <laughs> they actually do a lot of things. In 1958, part of the ISM spectrum was initially set aside for unlicensed use for the Class D Citizens Band radio. So this is kind of the first instance of not just here's some reserved frequency, but you can use it without having a specific license from the FCC to use it. Mm, okay which was an important prerequisite to you just standing up an access point. Yeah, exactly. So in 1985, the FCC made unlicensed spread spectrum use of the ISM bands available. They said officially, rather than just this chunk for this use, that the ISM spectrum can be used for um, unlicensed use. Mm, Okay. So that happened in 1985. So a little bit before we had an internet, let alone talking about wireless use and laptops and stuff like that. Right, yeah, yeah. I believe that was the era of the luggable computer. (laughs) (laughs) So because the IT reserved these frequencies for Wi-Fi and similar radio frequency applications, no country reserved these frequencies for other use. Mm -hmm. So this made it so we could use the same Wi-Fi everywhere. And that's pretty awesome. Yeah. So now that we have Wi-Fi, there's the question of security, right? Mm-hmm. We're broadcasting out in the world and we have, there's nothing to prevent somebody who's close enough from just receiving those, those frames. Right, yeah. Layer two, it's frame. Layer three, it's packets. So you can just read stuff. In fact, that's a problem we currently have with open, with open access points. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to deal with that. And when they published the original 802.11 standard, they published 
Wired Equivalent, equivalent Privacy, WEP. And it originally used a 64-bit string broken into a 40-bit key and a 24-bit initialization vector for the RC4 algorithm, which is a stream cipher. Right. And um, when the US government relaxed export restrictions on cryptography, the implementation extended to using a 104-bit key where they doubled the size of the key and had the same initialization vector, 80-bit key, 24-bit uh, initialization vector. Mm -hmm. Now, RC4 at this point is pretty much deprecated, but it was a proprietary algorithm designed by Ron Rivest of RCA. He is the R in RSA. Sorry, RSA, not RCA. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a stream cipher. And one of the interesting parts about it is in September 1994, the description was anonymously posted to the cypherpunks mailing list and then to Usenet where it was analyzed by a guy named Bob Jenkins. They found the leaked code was interoperable with commercial RSA implementations of the RC4 algorithm. Uh, and that, that leaked code was confirmed to be the real code by Revest in 2014. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm. So... By the time Wi-Fi was released, we had the source code to implement RC4, even though RC4 was a proprietary cipher. Mm -hmm. So in 2001, a paper called Weaknesses in the Key Scheduling Algorithm for RC4 was published by Scott Fulher, Isaac Manton, and Adi Shamar. And their paper detailed an approach to extract keys from captured ciphertext specifically for WEP. And as previously noted, all you need to do is be close enough and have an antenna. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so the first known implemented attack on this was by a guy named Adam Stubblefield, but he didn't make his attack public. However, there were a couple of other folks that did. The tool AirSnort and the tool WebCrack were released in the same year, 2001. Yeah, I remember using, I think, I think it was WebCrack. Yeah, you crack WEP keys using about 1500 packets, which doesn't take that long. So WEP was considered weak at that point is completely deprecated by the Alliance by 2004, but we didn't have a lot of good alternatives. We didn't have WPA, the, the alternative until about 2003. Mm -hmm. There was some initial support stuff according to at least some of the stuff I read going back to 1999, but like it wasn't in use really until, until 2003. So we had a significant period of more than a year where you didn't really have any options other than having weak ciphers for wireless. Yeah. But essentially the recurring thing, the recurring problem with all wireless is that a lot of things that we assumed were relatively secure because they were just data link layer attacks. That doesn't apply in wireless because the data link layer is just being close enough and not actually having physical access to the network. Right. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that is kind of the bread and butter, what everybody's looking to be able to do in one of these hacks is a layer two man in the middle. When you're talking about layer two, the most important thing in Ethernet as far as that goes, is the ARP table, the address resolution protocol table that mm -hmm. associates a MAC address to an IP address. Yeah. That's not authenticated, it's very low level kind of thing. So if you can convince, you know, even on a local network, if you can convince a system that your MAC address is the default gateway, it will send a frame 
to the switch, which will send that frame to you, even though it's not your IP address, as far as the network gateway is concerned. Mm -hmm. And then if you rewrite that MAC address and send it on to the gateway, then you know you get all the packets in the middle. Yep. And the response comes back to you because as far as the gateway is concerned, you sent the, the, the packet. Yeah, exactly. So that leads us to kind of my, at this point, kind of my favorite one of these layer two man in the middle attacks. Mm-hmm. It's called hole 196. And the reason it's called hole 196 is because it is a hole created by the way the protocol is implemented on page 196 of the standard. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. That's good. So in WPA and WPA2, you get two keys when you associate. One is the pairwise transient key, PTK, and the other is the group temporal key, GTK. The PTK is the unicast key that you use in order to encrypt all of your traffic to and from the access point itself. And the GTK is shared by everybody associated. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in order to do this attack, you need to be associated with the same network as your victim. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of cases, the write-ups of whole 196 basically say, we're not that worried about it because they're authorized on the network. And I'm like, I don't know that I feel that way. <laughs> uh, yeah, because like, even if you're, because, you know, back when WPA2 was kind of, you know, still getting out and back when I was just starting in cybersecurity and learning about this stuff, like there were there were still tons of tools that like, you know, crack uh, web instantly. <laughs> but also like, even if I was in the network, like I could still fuck around with like, I remember my ex's parents, I messed with their Wi-Fi so that every page they brought up, every picture was like pictures of different cows <laughs> and like all the iframes. Yes. And they were like, what the hell's going on? It's because you put a proxy in the middle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, we know that insider threat is still a thing that we worry about. And I'm going to even posit a kind of blended threat thing. There's a lot of situations where you're in an enterprise network, right? Yeah. And that system may very well already be owned. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So if it's sufficiently owned, it could probably implement this attack and get traffic on the local wireless network by creating a man in the middle for everybody else associated that's on that site. Mm -hmm. What exactly that gets you, I'm not going to necessarily, I can't like draw a line to, and you know, all your Bitcoins are mine, but like it's incrementally more access that you could have. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Just because it's physically an insider doesn't necessarily mean an insider is the one that's controlling the man in the middle at this point in the infosec world. And again, uh, so I should say that this is one of those, and we haven't talked very much about this, but this is one of those things where what is technically possible versus what we have seen examples of is very important balance to keep. And in fact, one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast was to actually expose people to the things that have been really seen and get an idea of what's been seen in the wild versus what's theoretically possible. Yeah, because I mean, there there are a lot of attacks like uh, what was the one side channeling just the vibrations from memory and virtual machines in order yep. to figure out encryption keys. And I have this argument pretty often with our security guy because, you know, the, the mandate is patch everything. Yep. Like, oh my God, like this is a critical patch. And I'm like, there's no way for this to get exploited. Right. And to patch it requires, sometimes it's a very easy patch and it's right. like, okay, whatever. Sometimes it's, this could potentially like screw this system up. Yeah, And the chances of exploiting this are like 
almost nil. Like, you know, right. there's always there's always a chance. But in order to get to the exploit level, like they would have to like hop so many fences, pass so many like guards with guns, like, you know, yeah. well, do all this stuff. When I'm writing a threat assessment, one of the things I do keep in mind is exactly those kind of things where if somebody has that level of access to this set of target systems, they've already got more access than this exploit gives them. So why am I worrying too much about it? <laughs> yeah, I, I was like, you, you know, like in order to exploit this, he has to be sitting in the server room. If he's sitting in the server room, he owns all of our stuff. <laughs> right. And this is not saying never patch anything, but it is important to not just be credulous about every vulnerability needs a patch, but mm -hmm. some level of prioritization, some level of analysis is, is important. It's not just this vulnerability exists. Do I have a means of detecting it? What vector is it going to be? What's the impact assessment? But has it been seen in the wild? Yeah. What level of exposure do we have? Like you'll see in a normal threat assessment, is it public? But like we're saying, you're going down the level of complexity. Is it public? Is it exposed? What level? What level of uh, of other associated access would you need to to exploit this? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like simple patches, like patch your system. Don't have to leave it mm -hmm. unpatched. But very complicated ones that might like you know call into you modifying the registry on Windows and stuff like that. Those kind of take into consideration like what you're doing mm -hmm. it could potentially the same goes with i just had this conversation with an intern is um following cis benchmarks and open scap results mm -hmm. because they will they will basically have you brick your computer yes to almost unusable levels to meet their 100 percent score and right you know th that's not feasible and if you read their documentation they're they're saying do everything that's appropriate for your system Ex exactly <laughs> yeah yeah, too many people just look at the number and go, well, you didn't make 95. Yeah. So we got to have, like 95 is our cutoff. Managing security through checklists. Yeah, exactly. Auditors. And a lot of auditors I've dealt with, or a lot of even management I've dealt with, tend to forget the the that it's not no vulnerabilities within a system. It's no unmanaged vulnerabilities. You can have risk assessments for things. I did some consulting at a hospital environment for a while. And things like MR, a lot of medical equipment, the one that I can think of was specifically the, the PC attached to an MRI machine, right. couldn't be patched. Yeah, They were very regimented about the version, the exact version and patch level of the Windows box that it ran on. Mm -hmm. And that Windows was at the time, even at that point in time, deprecated. But when you isolate that from the network, then you've dealt with the vulnerability. You've said, I know this vulner these vulnerabilities exist, but I've mitigated it by isolating the system. Yeah, I isolating um, on the network, like that's that's a major thing we do with some of the simulators and stuff like that, because mm -hmm. it turns out when you build a simulator to mirror the spacecraft and then the spacecraft has been in space for 10 years, you, you can't update and patch the simulator because yeah. you can't update and patch the spacecraft. Right. So <laughs> Super long tangent, but yeah. But getting back to that wireless thing. <laughs> so what Hole 196 allows you to do is announce in ARP, hey, no, I'm the gateway. And then when your victim wants to go out to the world, they're sending the traffic, right? Mm -hmm. But they're sending it encrypted with their unicast key, their PTK, their, their pairwise key, right? Right. So what will happen is the access point will see that and say, oh, 
the destination MAC address for this is this other host I have. So very conveniently decrypt it <laughs> and then re-encrypt it using your PTK. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah, it's very convenient that way. I would think that this would be a relatively easy thing to detect for if you're going to look at packets deeper than just their art frame level. There, and there are ways of detecting this using wire, uh, wireless intrusion prevention systems. But I couldn't really find any reference material saying that any particular manufacturer of, uh, of access points had built in a protection system against whole uh, whole 196 in their in their subsequent firmware and this is and this has been out since I think 2008 um maybe it was 2010 so I don't know that this is a vulnerability that's been addressed I know that I couldn't find any reports of it being used in the wild for a real for a for a, like a newsworthy hack mm -hmm. but this might still be a thing I I will say I did not try to replicate it at home <laughs> But more commonly, you're going to see man-in-the-middle type attacks with things like creating access points with very common AP names. Yeah, yeah. Or another thing is if there's a local access point that is using WPA, WPA2, or should just be WPA2, and we'll get into that, they'll create an open access point using the same SSID. Mm -hmm. And then they'll either act as... Uh, just that network, or they'll try and create a captive portal. And a captive portal is if you go to a hotel or an airport and you associate to the open access, uh, the, the, the open AP, right. and what, no matter what web page you go to, you get the login to the, or give your flight number or, or your, yeah, yeah. your hotel room, room number. number. Yeah. yeah. That is a captive portal. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people will make malicious captive portals that will try and extract information that will help them associate to that I, that AP or possibly get other information from you. Yeah, because like your phone will constantly um, try to reconnect to mm -hmm. uh, Wi-Fi points its access before. So yeah, if you just set up one that's named Starbucks, you could pull in a lot of people. Yeah, there was actually a, a whole problem. They called it Lure 10. That was very much like that, but for Windows 10, they had this feature called Wi-Fi Sense that would connect to open access APs and automatically accept terms of service if it was on their list of AP, of AP network names that they knew about. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, so hmm. they were like, all right, you had an airport hotspot. And in addition to the extended SSID, the ESSID, there's also a BSSID, uh, which is kind of metadata about the access point. And so the table they had of access points that you were allowed to associate with was SSIDs and location information related to the BSSID information that's being transmitted. Mm -hmm. Well, they figured out that what they could do, what you could do is you could copy that BSSID information. And if you could encourage the your victim to associate by sending deauthorization frames, um, you could mimic that hotspot network and get it to automatically associate with you. Uh, this worked pretty well. It worked so well that Microsoft turned off the uh, Wi-Fi Sense feature in 2017, <laughs> or they turned it off by default. So some of this is, hey, did you not watch what was happening? Because uh, like sometimes when you get to some of these, these lure access points, they'll have you connect to an HTTP rather than an HTTPS site. Mm -hmm. Yep. 
Yeah, I've seen that. Or or they'll have you accept their certificate. And in doing so, they're they uh they act as the man in the middle. And some of those things you at the user level can see that and you can make your own mistakes there. But some of these things, the system's making the mistakes for you. Right. And like I think that there's a, di- a distinct difference between user behavior related problems and system related system behavior related problems because you're going to have leak throughs on the on the on the people behavior side but if it's the system mm-hmm. behavior side a lot of times most of most users don't have the opportunity to even make the mistake it's just done right yeah so let's talk about a little bit about WPA and WPA2 which replaced um WEP you know when Wi-Fi Alliance kicked it to the curb so WPA was effectively introduced in 2003 and has two modes of operation, personal and enterprise. Personal is the one that pretty much everybody uses at home and it's the easy way to set it up. And it's the one that's t- kind of gotten the most attention from a security point of view. So WPA2 used a temporal key integrity protocol in order to do the negotiation, TKIP. And in kind of backwards compatibility to the, to the, the original framing stuff for WEP, you associate to the access point and then you do authentication. And so right now you have a generic association frame and then you actually do the the TKIP authentication. And it uses a nonce value. A nonce value is a unique random number that is used in a lot of crypto protocols to prevent replay. Um, A replay attack is I captured it and I'm just playing it and I'm just using it again. So if you have a WEP key where every packet is encrypted with the same key, it's streamed with the same key. You once you have it, you have it. If you capture, if you manage to capture your pairwise key, the PTK, mm-hmm. you can't just use it again because the negotiation requires the nonce value that the access point gives you. Right, right. And then WPA used RC4 for packet encryption similar to WEP, but it generates a new key for every packet. Okay. So by doing that, it really makes the replay and crackability a lot harder, even though they didn't significantly change the way that the encryption method worked with WPA. But turns out not good enough. (laughs) Uh, So WPA2 is pretty similar to WPA, except that it uses AES instead of RC4 for the packet encryption. And they replaced TKIP with CCMP to serve basically the same function. Works a little differently, but but nobody's really attacking CCMP. So, so uh, I'm gonna have to talk about exactly how that works. Mm. WPA2 was introduced in 2004 by the Wi-Fi Alliance and it requ- was required for all new devices to support WPA2. And they completely deprecated WPA in 2012. So if WPA2 was such a leap ahead of WEP, why did it get deprecated basically almost as soon as it came out? Right. Well, it turns out that using RC4 wasn't the best idea. So there was a WEP attack called Chop Chop, which basically said, if you were in the middle, if you could receive packets from your victim and transmit them to the access point, you could get the packet, truncate it, send it over to the access point. And the access point would say it's a valid packet if you basically guessed the plain text correctly. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. So you could progressively 
go through the checksum, which was not encrypted, and use that to disclose through brute force, but less brute force than just a full-on um, straight brute force attack through the entire mm -hmm. key space, discover the WEP key. Interesting. Okay. So this is WEP thing. Well, there's then you have the Beck and Two's attacks. And these are the guys behind Aircrack NG. Okay. Yeah, I remember using that. Yeah, uh, it's still out. It's still around. It's still doing some other stuff, uh, or, or giving you all the tools for all of this stuff. Um, but initially, they found they could use the same chop chop method to attack WPA as WEP. This resulted in them disclosing part of the key generation method that WPA uses to do that per packet key thing. They call it the Michael key. It's the MIC key. But it allowed them to inject a small number of packets between three and seven packets to the client, which might let you do some stuff, but it wasn't like a complete jailbreak. Right, yeah. Yeah, a little bit after that, uh, Oshi, uh, Oshigashi uh, Mori attack, came, the Oshigashi Mori attack came out uh, in 2009, which improved on the original Bak2's attack and reduced the execution time to about one to four minutes from about 12 minutes. Yeah, like that. And then in 2008, the, the back and twos pair managed to reverse the mic algorithm. And in 2010, Beck found a flaw in that algorithm, which allowed for the complete key recovery of WPA traffic. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the Wi-Fi Alliance has been, had been saying use WPA2 for a long time, but they completely deprecated it in 2012. Right, right. WPA2 is not completely without issues. The current big attack out there is called Crack. And it allows you basically to replace the PTK and GTK installation under some circumstances. Hmm. What you have to basically be able to do is block part of the negotiation. Okay. Because you get the key information transmitted to the victim. And if the victim doesn't acknowledge it, it's going to transmit it again. Okay. And the way that the key transmission stuff works, the, the, the key retransmission stuff works, is if they get another packet in that window of new keys, it'll use the most recent keys that, that uh, it received. That makes sense. Yeah. So if you can manage to block the acknowledgement handshake, you can get the client to have a new set of keys. Nice. Nice. So that's kind of the current, um, the current WPA2 big vulnerability mm -hmm. and folks are trying to move on from WPA too, although, um, and there are tools to execute crack right now. I'm going to say it hasn't come up on my radar. So I don't know if that's the huge, if it's the hugest deal in the world in terms of the complexity of execution. Right. I mean, I haven't tried it and, uh, and I haven't heard it at, about it as a significant problem. Is it, is it crack with a K or is it crack with a C? Crack with a K. I figured <laughs> we, we always misspell everything. So yes. And then also for WPA and WPA2, there's the enterprise um, authentication stuff, which there have been a few attacks on. The negotiation is done um, using extensible authentication pro protocol, EAP, or protected extensible authentication protocol, PEEP, P-E-A-P. Okay. Now, the difference between the two of them is really that PEEP uses uses SSL TLS. Um, right, right. The handshake uses the MSV2 chap. We're not going to talk too much about that, but that's been essentially broken by Moxie Marlin Spike. That's a really interesting thing that 
is probably worth its its own little episode. But uh, I'm trying to get through all of the the basic protocol <laughs> stuff before we go into some of some more crazy uh, yeah. stories. If the attacker is in the middle middle of the exchange, they can copy some of the author the authorization credential. And kind of the easiest thing to do there is to pin the certificate that the authentication server is using for the TLS connection. Mm. So it's like, I know that for this network, this enterprise network, I should be trusting this key. And so it doesn't matter if the attacker uses a, their own key because I'm not going to trust it. Right. Yeah. It's kind of the easiest thing to do. So that brings us to WPA3, which isn't in really in use yet, but there's some really cool things that it does. Oh, I, I just remember it being brought up a few times back when I was still listening to Security Now. But yeah, I haven't looked into it real much at all. Well, at this point, the most important things to know are they've changed the key exchange mechanism from EAP and, and CCMP to what they call simultaneous authentication of equals and uh, opportunistic wireless encryption. What uh, opportunistic wireless encryption allows for is open access point type stuff with actually encrypting the, the traffic, right. allow you to associate and then encrypt without being an authorized, a necessarily authorized participant with a pre-shared key of any kind. Mm-hmm. Um, it also significantly upgrades the ciphers used. This is basically the difference between TLS 1012 AES ciphers to TLS 13 approved ciphers. Okay. I mean, it's a, it's a lot of the same stuff where they're changing from CBC to like CCM and GCM, and they're using uh, 192-bit encryption and SHA-2 algorithms. I believe the top cipher was three uh, uh, SHA-384, but you can actually downgrade to AES-128 using CCM. Mm. The current attack to uh, WPA3 uh, has to do with a downgrade attack. Uh, of, of encryption is called Dragon Blood, but I don't know that it's worth talking too much about that until we see WPA3 finally uh, in widespread use. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. But I'd like to finish out on some of the enterprise wireless intrusion prevention stuff. Mm-hmm. Some of the stuff in access point association, you can force disassociation of access points, and so a wireless uh, intrusion prevention system can say, I'm authorizing access points with this name, with this list of MAC addresses. Okay. And if I see anything out there that isn't one of those, I'm going to force dissociation whenever somebody tries to associate with one of those. Mm, okay. So what that does is it basically blanket denies any wireless that isn't the authorized wireless. Right. Yeah. And that used to kind of be the way that we went about it. But nowadays, instead of being on a campus, a lot of cases you're in a shared building and people are using hotspots and people are, and the guys upstairs set up their new, their own little wireless network mm-hmm. and things get a lot trickier. So a lot of times you have to dial it back to things like anything that isn't on my authorized AP list that uses the same information as my AP, thwart that, like block that association. Right. And they can also detect a lot of the attacks that we're talking about here, weird MAC address ARP stuff, various methods of 
of blocking and retransmitting those frames, mm-hmm. you could detect those with wire with wire wireless intrusion prevention, and that's some of the advantage of buying the, the, the enterprise grade wireless stuff when you have enterprise budgets mm-hmm. is that they can do the access point stuff and the wireless intrusion prevention stuff on the same equipment. Yeah, that's nice. Because when the WIP stuff originally came out, you had to do it all. Uh, you had to put a whole new set of access points out to do the defense side of things in addition to all the wireless stuff you had to do to support clients. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, forcing a detachment is a lot easier than maintaining traffic. So you didn't have to have nearly as many of them, but you still needed to put those out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I will admit at this point, I'm not super familiar with, with some of the folks that are doing this stuff at, at a very high level about some of the newer their their newer features and how and how they operate but I can tell you that at Black Hat and Defcon using their wireless network when they first came out with it was at best fraught but in a lot of cases basically impossible there were so many people doing so many so many things that you were you couldn't associate with anything <laughs> and now um and I'll shout out Aruba because they they've been doing the 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 stuff for for a long time for Black Hat that network is now usable. I wouldn't recommend necessarily using it for anything sensitive. <laughs> right, yeah. I, just because you never know. I've had friends at Black Hat DEF CON who are much sharper than me have problems there from things that weren't well known at, the, uh, at that particular moment in time. So <laughs> you never know what's brand new out there. Yeah, if, yeah. <laughs> But I will say that the that the wireless network is much more usable. Um, I tend to come, and I think I've mentioned this before. I tend to take a laptop and give it a brand new, fresh Linux image mm-hmm. when I go out to to any place I consider dangerous, which isn't just DefCon Black Hat. And then when I get back, I will basically wipe the box right. and reimage it for the next time out there. But that's one of those an exercise that became an obsession kind of thing, where it's like. <laughs> Like, what would be the right thing to do? How tough is it? And I just kind of got in the habit. <laughs> anyway, so wireless. Yeah. It's the future. Or wait, no, I guess not. It's the past and the future. Well, the thing is that there are, like I said in the beginning, a lot of new, interesting things going on in the wireless world, specifically about like the IoT assignment stuff. Mm. We know the Internet of Things has its fair share of security issues and we'll eventually do an episode on that on a lot of stuff with iot we'll probably do a series based on the th- stuff that i already know and i know that i've only got my toe in the into the iot world yeah um but the fundamental problem in a lot of cases is that the devices themselves have as li- little complexity as they can get away with and strapping security in there is difficult it's not unlike the problem you were talking about the satellite logging you were talking about. Yeah, on the CubeSats. Yeah, on, on, because running a whole SIM on a CubeSat is very resource intensive. Mm-hmm. So what security can you do given the hardware limitations? Yeah, exactly. The Internet of Things is a very similar problem set. Yeah, that'll be, that'll be interesting. IoT stuff is, I've, I've read tons of fun little horror stories going on. It's very, it's an interesting uh research space and i've gone back and forth about how much iot to actually have here at home yeah yeah i've done like i've gone back and forth like like i ha- i used to have a nest now you know i, I don't have it up just because i'm just too lazy to hook it up 
and its main proponent was me just being able to monitor the air conditioning um, in humid as hell areas. And also like the, the apartment that I lived in had a, like a Honeywell thermostat from like 1970. So I was like, yeah. all right, this, is, this isn't going to cut. I'm going to be using like too much um, on my bill. So it makes a big difference. I, mm-hmm. I had a thermostat in one place I lived that still had the mercury bulb in it. Yeah, that's what this one had. Yeah. yeah. And um, between the landlord upgrading the the windows and me replacing the thermostat, my heating bills went down by more than half. So. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's crazy because it's like, you know, it's got the little slider thing. And it's like, you don't know, like, what that is. Like, it's a, it's a 70 degrees. Is it 75? Mm-hmm. Like, because it's only 70 and then 80. And you're like, I don't know. I mean, this is a tangent, but like, actually, the big deal for, for me was the fact that it had a uh, programmable um, schedule on it. That, that, that was a huge thing, too. But like, um, I won't have anything that will listen to me at home, which is becoming more, more and more difficult. But like, I've had a cat feeder that talks to wireless. I've had a grill that talks to the wireless. A grill? Yeah. I've never seen that. The grill that I've got right now, and I'm not going to talk about the brand name, but yeah, yeah, yeah. basically... It'll tell me, I can set the temperature and it's got a, a probe thermometer that hooks into it too. So I can monitor how hot the meat's getting and, uh, and what temperature the grill's at and even adjust it from the, from the phone app. This is one of those things where I'm like, this sounds actually really convenient, especially if it's cold outside and you don't want to be sitting there grilling. I mean, it's because I have that, I've been doing kind of longer duration, hmm. slow cook kind of stuff in it. So mm, yeah, yeah, that's really convenient because if you're going to be letting it go for four hours, you don't want to be babysitting it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Going out there, you know, checking it every, every as often as you pick up the phone and maybe going out there maybe twice yeah. is maybe the better way of going, especially when you're doing a slow cook like that. You don't want to be opening the grill a ton. Yeah, yeah. That's a great way to anyway. hold some juices. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm not hungry, so we'll have to end the episode here. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So uh, we'll see you next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. Recording notes can be found at www.hackingthegibson.online. Follow Hack the Gibson 1 on Twitter to get notified of new recordings. Support the continued observation of Hacking the Gibson on Patreon.